Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod, and welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable, where we look back on the news of the week and try to make some sense of it all, as impossible as that may seem. A lot of news this week on several fronts. On Thursday, nine House Republicans joined 220 Democrats to hold former White House aide Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress for refusing to comply with a subpoena from the House Select Committee on January 6th. Now it's up to Merrick Garland. Will the Department of Justice file charges? Meanwhile, Democrats are still struggling to agree on two infrastructure bills. Will they ever get their act together? Is time running out? And by the time the final vote on infrastructure is scheduled, will Joe Manchin still be a Democrat? And last night on CNN's town hall, after Senate Republicans this week used the filibuster for the third time to block debate on voting rights, President Biden said he was open to changing the filibuster for voting rights bills and maybe even more. Are there enough Democratic votes to do that? Well, that's enough to keep our panelists working overtime, so it's time for them to weigh in. This Joining us this morning, Sung Min Kim, White House correspondent for The Washington Post. Sung Min, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Scott Wong, congressional correspondent for The Hill. Very busy these days. Hi, Scott. Hey, Bill. And Jeff Dufour, editor-in-chief of National Journal, overseeing it all. Hello, Jeff. Good morning, Bill. So it was uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, one of two Republicans on the House Select Committee, who sort of set the tone yesterday, making the argument for why the full House of Representatives should join the House Select Committee in holding Steve Bannon uh, accountable for refusing to comply with the House subpoena. Here's Congresswoman Cheney. Mr. Bannon's own public statements make clear he knew what was going to happen before it did. And thus, he must have been aware of and may well have been involved in the planning of everything that played out on that day. The American people deserve to know what he knew and what he did. So, Scott, you were there. What was the mood in the, uh, in the House? And were you surprised that nine Republicans joined Democrats in voting to hold him in contempt? Well, Bill, I was in the chamber, and I would describe the situation as as tense in the room. And there were some really interesting dynamics that were playing out. Uh, Democrats had basically given Liz Cheney the floor to manage that debate. Uh, you know, from the Democratic side, uh, she was not. She was on the Republican side of the aisle, uh, situated, uh, seated next to many of of the Trump's loyalists. 
but she was arguing in favor of holding Bannon in contempt of Congress. And so it was an interesting dynamic playing out. Adam Kinzinger, the other Republican uh, who serves on the January 6th panel, was seated on the Democratic side of the aisle. So there was a, a bit of uh, mixing and matching going on. Uh, and <clears throat> at the end of that whole debate, uh, uh, one key Trump ally, Marjorie Taylor Greene, got into a shouting match with both Liz Cheney and Jamie Raskin, two members of the January 6th panel, saying the American people are, are not interested in, uh, you know, in this uh, investigation that they're pursuing. And, and of course, Liz Cheney shot back and said, well, you know, don't you think, Marjorie, you should be focused on, on uh, Jewish space lasers, that crazy... <laughs> conspiracy theory uh, that Marjorie Taylor Greene was touting earlier this year on Facebook. So, you know, to, to answer your question, um, no, I wasn't really surprised. The, the nine uh, Republicans who voted with the Democrats to hold Bannon in contempt were mostly, for the most part, the, the same members who voted to impeach President Trump uh, right after the January 6th riot. So that, that was mostly consistent um, but it does show that, uh, you know, there is a small, small group of Republicans that are still willing to stand up to the president, even as he retains this this iron grip on the party. So, so men, the uh, the move now shoots to the executive branch, uh, particularly the Department of Justice. What can we expect? Will Merrick Garland follow through or any signs of that? Well, this is something that the attorney general spoke to in House testimony, and I would expect would come up again when he uh, appears for a hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee next week. And he has been very careful. He and the Justice Department and White House officials have been very careful to kind of make sure that uh, charges of any sort of contempt are brought on the merits and not based on politics. Um, so I think that is how the Justice Department has been approaching the issue. But What's been remarkable about that is actually the comments of the president of the United States himself. He was actually mm -hmm. asked this question uh, when uh, last week, um, whether he believed that um, the Justice Department should be holding uh, people like Steve Bannon in contempt of Congress and whether charges should be filed. And he was adamant. He said, yes, he, th he thought that the Justice Department should hold, you know, should go after these guys. And uh, White House Pre Press Secretary Jen Psaki spent some time and other White House, White House officials spent some time trying to basically clean up those comments. Obviously, we know that part of Biden, uh, part of Biden's broad pitch to voters and one of his pledges for the presidency is that his Justice Department would be independent, that he would not have any influence over uh, DOJ officials, um, you know, which is which is a co contrast from Trump, who really saw the Justice Department <laughs> Total. Total. as um, right. He, right, right. He, who really um, he, he really saw the Justice Department has his his own kind of legal team and not the not the lawyer for the not the lawyers for the people of the United States of America. So what was remarkable um, is that President Biden did kind of clean up his own comments on the DOJ matter last night at CNN's town hall. 
saying it was actually a mistake for him to be so adamant about whether DOJ should bring charges um, against Bannon and Bannon and others who may be um, who may be evading congressional subpoenas. He's stated very clearly, I thought I might add, that he has had no conversations with DOJ with Attorney General Garland on this matter and that he will not do it. And he did make it a point to kind of, um, you know, almost apologize and walk back and said and saying that he should not have made those comments, which I thought was very interesting. I thought it was remarkable for the president of the United States basically to say, yeah, I screwed up. Right. Right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you did. Well, national television. Uh, mm. uh, few few presidents have gone have gone that far. Um, uh, Jeff, I want to ask you. So who's the real target here? What message is the committee sending? Is this really a broad uh, a shot across the bow of Donald Trump? Uh, it is. And now there's questions as to whether Dan Scavino is also going to cooperate or not. Remember, he, he ducked the process server for a week mm-hmm. or so before he was finally served. And unlike Mark Meadows and Kash Patel, who the committee has said is, is quote unquote, engaging uh, with them, uh, negotiating their appearances and their testimony, um, Scavino might find himself uh, on team Bannon as far as as far as this goes. Uh, I, I guess the biggest question for the, the, the Department of Justice, and I, I think there's still going to be plenty of pressure on, on Garland. I, I actually talked to a, a high ranking Democratic source last night who said there's a lot of regret among uh, Democratic leadership now that uh, that Biden went with Garland and not Doug Jones because they think that Garland's been a little bit soft on, on, on some of these matters. Uh, so I would expect him to take action pretty quickly. Um, I guess the only question is, does the lawsuit from Trump play out first? Uh, I, I think not only because uh, Trump might have some standing here and could at least have a, ju- a justiciable case. Uh, Bannon most definitely does not have, have any standing here. Uh, right. he, he, he was not a, a, an employee at the time. Uh, the new administration is not on board with the with the privilege request, which, uh, based on precedent, should render it moot. Um, and it was also entirely a political matter. It, it was not about White House business. Uh, this was this was Bannon uh, speaking as a private citizen on a political matter outside of the White House. So I I, I can't imagine where the privilege claim um, would would come from. Uh, and I also, we also should should mention that uh, remember, one of Trump's eleventh hour pardons was was on behalf of Bannon. So uh, on there, behalf, there could there could be a quid pro quo at work here <laughs> if we know anything about Mr. Trump. Uh, in, indeed, Scott, I want to come back to you for a second. Uh, Congressman uh, Congressman Adam Schiff also spoke yesterday and and raised these stakes. I think a little bit in that that he was saying I, I believe there's more at stake here. Than just Steve Bannon, it gets down to really uh, the power uh, and the ability of Congress to do its job. Here, um, Congressman Adam Schiff. If we fail to uphold Congress's power to compel information, then we cease to be a co-equal branch of government, unable to perform our oversight or check any abuses of executive power. Take away a court's power to subpoena witnesses, and it fails to be a court take away the Congress's ability to do the same, and it fails to be a Congress, becoming instead a mere plaything for a corrupt executive. So, Scott, I wonder then, so what are Republicans saying? Why wouldn't they vote 
to uh, uphold the power of their own institution because they may need that power if they get back in charge again. Well, that's exactly right. And it's very likely that they will be back in charge, uh, given given their sl- the slim margins that Democrats hold and, and what history has shown us about the party in power losing seats in the midterms. It's very likely they will be back in power in the House, at least in 2023. The arguments have been pretty convoluted, to be honest. Uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy yesterday was making the case to reporters during his press conference that uh, because this was not a, a more traditional uh, committee, that this was a, a special select committee, that uh, and, and one that was uh, that Republicans chose not to participate in uh, after Pelosi rejected two of, of those of McCarthy's picks on the panel, Jim Banks and Jim Jordan, that uh, that, you know, this this wasn't a committee that should have that same type of subpoena power as a as a regular traditional committee. Uh, that's a that's a pretty uh, far stretch, I think, especially given that, uh, you know, Republicans had the Benghazi committee back, you know, several years ago. They formed that committee uh, <laughs> unilaterally. The Repu- Democrats objected uh, and, and didn't like that. They did participate in that committee. Um, but you know, you could argue, I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways to pick apart those arguments. So it's, it it is a little bit confusing, uh, when, when Republicans try to say that this committee has no standing to issue these subpoenas. Right. So on the governing front, uh, and it was strictly among Democrats, the conversation this week continued to be, uh, about trying to make a, reach a final deal, both on the BIF, (laughs) the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, and the BBB, the Build Back Better, which may now be the Build Back Smaller Bill. Um, and Sung Min, in the news, in the town hall last night, President Biden went out of his way uh, in response to several questions to give all kinds of details about internal, inside, Oval Office negotiations he's, he's had. <laughs> With members of Congress and with particularly two senators, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, I was stunned by how much he revealed about those conversations. What did? You, what was your takeaway <laughs> that there's that? First of all, is is there going to be a deal? Um, well, first of all, as a reporter who has been frantically just chasing for any tidbit of these negotiations, I mean, for for months, but especially in the last several days, as these talks have heated up, it was, I mean, it was stunning just to see Joe Biden, the president of the United States, just confirm these details on live TV. And, and I thought maybe I should have just waited for this for this town hall on uh, on Thursday night. But yeah, you're right. It was remarkable because, especially because the White House has been incredibly careful um, to not what they say in their words speak for the positions of Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, And they just really were careful about the integrity of these negotiations because this is such a sensitive matter for the White House. You know, you can't afford to lose any votes in the Senate. You can only lose about three or so votes in the House. So it was really remarkable to see, um, you know, just President Biden basically read out all his, um, you know, his conversations, his meetings, his yeah. phone calls um, with members of Congress. And in terms of actual information, much of what Biden said on uh, on um, 
Thursday night was known and had been reported by most of us uh, citing anonymous sources. You know, for example, the paid leave provision being scaled back to four weeks uh, from the initial proposed 12, the fact that there wouldn't be tuition-free community college, which uh, President Biden uh, jokingly pointed out that what that was causing problems with him at home with his wife, the first lady, who is a community college instructor. Um, but uh, but but the way that he was so clear about or so so candid about whose fault it was um, in terms or, or just how, how that or how he couldn't get those provisions, the, the provisions that he had pushed for, that most of the Democratic Party had pushed for and that he had vowed to get done. He's not getting a lot of that because of opposition, because there aren't the votes, because of opposition from two key senators. You know, he pointed yeah. out that he did not have the votes, for example, for a corporate tax rate increase, which was, which has kind of been a stunning, um, you know, turn of events for us covering this policy debate for some time. And we know, we knew for some time that Senator Kirsten Sinema was more difficult to get um, on board when it came to the tax beat, tax piece than, um, than other members of Congress. But she really is literally the only Democratic member of Congress in either chamber who does not support raising that 21% corporate tax rate that was set by uh, the Trump tax cuts in 2017. And because of that one person's oppositions, that rate is probably going to stay at 21. And it's that's remarkable to see from a Democratic president, from a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate who all have campaigned and talked a lot about, you know, corporations needing to pay a, more of their share in taxes. Yeah. And the president was very blunt about things. He said, like, community college. Yeah, I like it. I want it. But Joe doesn't like it. The other Joe, Joe Manchin, right? Right, right. <laughs> As you point out, on the corporate tax, you know, he said, yeah, uh, I campaigned on this, but Sandra Cinema doesn't like it, right? I mean, right. He, he named them out. Uh, so, so, Jeff, which gets me to the bigger question, watching it last night, I kept thinking, okay, I'm a member of the White House Press Corps. We had a White House Correspondents Association meeting the other night, and one of the complaints that we all talked about was the fact that Joe Biden has held one, one news conference since he's been president. He has held three town halls, all of them on CNN. Like last night, those were questions that White House reporters would be dying to ask the president, have never had the opportunity. What's the wisdom for the White House, A, holding all of these town halls on CNN, and B, the president spilling the beans on private conversations that he's had with members of the Congress. Well, I think uh, on, your, on your first question, I think they have been overly cautious with with the president from the word go. Uh, there's all kinds of instances of them ushering reporters out of the room after an event with reporters screaming questions, not being able to get a word in edgewise. Uh, there have been very few impromptu questions on top of the lack of, of press conferences and, yeah. and just the abilities, to, uh, the ability to inter to interact with this president is, is frankly a, a, a lot lower than it was under Trump, which is remarkable. Um, I think Biden last night was really messaging a, a dose of reality to, to his base is how, is how I read it. Mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the more telling anecdotes I read this week was from, Axios uh, with this heated uh, meeting between Manchin and Sanders, uh, where Manchin is holding up his thumb and index finger to make a zero and yelling at Bernie, uh, I'm comfortable with zero. How's zero sound? <laughs> uh, 
So he said he could live, he could live without the whole package. Uh, so that just underscores how much leverage Mansion and by extension also cinema have in this. It, it, and, and Biden, it's this seemed aimed at his base. Look, we never had the votes. Now we're going to have to come around to behaving accordingly. Let's take our half a loaf where we can get it. Um, again, if you look at this big picture, even if you're on the left, 1.9 trillion on the on the, on the COVID stimulus, mm-hmm. 1.2 on infrastructure, maybe another 1.9 on the soft infrastructure social spending. So five trillion dollars plus in in new spending. You might have taken that if you were offered that at the outset of this uh, of the Biden administration. Uh, I'm glad you got uh, put those numbers out there because I saw someone reported this week that uh, that five trillion plus would be, if enacted, right, if it become, would be more than FDR and LBJ combined, and Biden would have done that in the first ten or eleven months of his presidency. So it's hard to see that were it to happen uh, as a defeat. Uh, but Scott Jeffries is. I've got to get back to the internal gossip here. What's what's really going on between Manchin and Bernie? I mean, <laughs> is it really as uh, intense and as ugly as it seems to be? And what about Manchin's repeated threat now to leave the Democratic Party? Is that for real? Well, no, uh, I don't think so. That story comes up every every couple years, <laughs> right. and uh, and it's come up again this week. Um, I think it was Mother Jones who reported that yeah. Manchin was David discussing Cor- David Corn leaving the Democratic Party. Obviously, that would create huge headaches for the Democrats and especially uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Um, but Manchin was asked that in in the hallways uh, right after that report came out, and he uh, very emphatically shot it down, calling it uh, absolute bullshit. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, don't, I can't speak to the, the, the di- dynamics between Manchin and Bernie, but um, obviously, um, you know, Manchin is a proud Democrat. He's been a, a lifelong Democrat. And uh, obviously, he represents a very red, uh, Trumpy state, per- perhaps one of the Trumpiest, and so uh, it's you know it's a question that comes up from time time to time. But uh, Manchin shot it down, and and Manchin has consistently said, unlike I think Kirsten Cinema, that he really does want to get uh, to to a deal. That he he does think something will get done. He's been optimistic, and I think this week and, and Sungmin probably can can add to this as well. But this week, it really did feel like a breakthrough week because we actually started to get a lot of the details that we had been waiting for for really Mm -hmm. weeks and months. They had been at an impasse with nothing really moving. And this week, it really did feel like, wow, a lot of the pieces were being filled in. And, and, you know, that was enlightening for not only reporters on Capitol Hill, but also lawmakers who really have felt shut out of the process for weeks and months. Yeah, so Sung Min, Scott just teed you up there, right? I mean, without, <laughs> without going into every element of these of this bill, particularly the soft uh, so-called human structure, uh, human infrastructure bill, we have a better idea now of what's in and what's out and what's going to be scaled down, uh, but still in there, uh, and what the final issues remain, don't we? 
We definitely do. And this has been a reality that's been clear for some time for those of us following the debate that the all of the all of the the promises or or the or the goals outlined in the initial three point five trillion dollar package and the policies outlined, for example, when House Democrats cleared through their respective pieces through their respective committees uh, back in September, it was it's been clear for um, for us for some time that pieces will actually have to be pared back. I think we started asking Democratic lawmakers weeks ago, um, you know what you know, how do you scale back these things? Do you do fewer programs for longer or, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. more for shorter? Do you go, do you slice the paid leave provisions? Do you like, how do and it wasn't really until this week that democratic lawmakers and president Biden himself started getting specific about how they get under the roughly, um, the the range keeps moving, but I don't think it doesn't appear that it's going to go higher than $1.9 trillion at this point for the, as the top line for the second infrastructure pack or or the second so-called the reconciliation package. So it really is. I mean, I I think the, the time pressure is certainly there. Um, A couple of things happening on that. And one is a technical deadline line of October 31st when authorization of surface highway programs uh, runs out um, that can have impacts on, for example, the grants that the Department of Transportation can send out to state and local governments, mm-hmm. uh, prospects of furloughs for federal employees under DOT. Um, that is something that can be fixed with short-term patches, but there it, it, it's, a, it's a question of whether lawmakers want to do that. Um, but a, a couple of other kind of more political deadlines, too, that I think, you know, frankly, are more important to Democrats right now. One is that President Biden is leaving for his next international trip next week. I will be traveling with him. He'll be going to Rome and uh, Rome, Italy and Glasgow, Scotland for a pair of global summits and especially um, for the for the summit in uh, the, for the for the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow. President Biden told lawmakers earlier this week that he needed progress. He needed a plan in hand on what the United States was going to do about the climate change crisis, basically to give him credibility when he faces all these world leaders um, in Scotland and tells the world what the United States is doing to be a leader on climate. And he made that very clear to Democratic lawmakers. And Democratic lawmakers want to help him in that effort. Mm -hmm. And then obviously Mm -hmm. the other deadline is the November second um, gubernatorial election in New Jersey and Virginia, Virginia being the more, uh, you know, the, being the bigger heartburn for Democrats right now, <laughs> um, where, uh, you know, Democrats in Virginia, starting from the candidate uh, Terry McAuliffe on down, has been saying, we need to show progress in Washington to boost those numbers, to get Democrats excited. And one way to do that is to pass that bipartisan infrastructure deal through the House before then. Yep. Uh, very, Virginia, very, very much on everybody's mind. Uh, the vice president was there this week, and the president will be there before November 2nd campaigning for Terry McAuliffe. Uh, there's one other big issue, big vote this week, and it was on voting rights. It kind of got lost in all the, uh, the other news. But let's get to that. Um, very, very important and may have important consequences on the filibuster. We'll get to that with our panelists, Sung Min Kim from the Washington Post, Jeff Dufer from National Journal, Scott Hill, Scott Wong from The Hill, uh, right after this little break here on the Bill Press Pod. 
Today's roundtable is brought to you by the American Federation of Teachers, the great teachers of America. Under the leadership of Randy Weingarten, they are doing the Lord's work uh, in the classrooms every day, particularly in this important transition time of getting back live into the classrooms. We salute America's teachers. Every one of us remembers the important teachers in our lives. They do such great, great work now for our kids. We thank them for their great work and thank them for the support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website, AFT.org. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Back with today's panel. Today's panel uh, on here on the uh, roundtable. Joining us from the National Journal, Jeff Dufer, editor in chief. From the Hill, Scott Wong, congressional correspondent, and from the Washington Post, Sung Min Kim, covering the White House for the Post. Last night, uh, well, this week, first of all, uh, for the third time, the issue of voting rights came up. This was the pared down bill. Uh, pared down to, again, uh, get the support and the votes of Senator Joe Manchin that came up for a vote. It never got to a vote because Republicans filibustered voting rights for the third time, which raised the question of whether this is enough to get Democrats to unite and do something about the filibuster. Strangely enough, maybe not strangely, but this issue did come up in the CNN town hall last night in this little exchange with Anderson Cooper, President Biden kind of surprised everybody. I also think we're going to have to move to the point where we fundamentally alter the filibuster. When it comes to voting rights, just so I'm clear, though, you would entertain the notion of doing away with the filibuster on that one issue. Is that correct? And maybe more. Jeff Dufer. Wow. That's uh, a total 180 from President Biden's uh, position before this. It is because remember Biden has always been uh, the the consummate Senate institutionalist, right? Uh, Thirty six so years in the Senate. So what's that tell us? Uh, 
he's going to try to bring a, a little bit of pressure to bear, but I still don't. I, we're going to sound like broken records on this. <laughs> I, I still don't think that means he's going to get Cinema and Mansion to 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 chuck the filibuster on this. Mansion's been lukewarm on the voting rights legislation to begin with. He's the one who who helped water this down uh, in the first place, uh, and he's flirting with party switching anyway, or at least, you know, putting, putting teasers out there. Um, he doesn't want to be the guy that, that nukes the filibuster in order to push through this, this, uh, democratic legislation, which McConnell has tarred as just the Democrats trying to exact partisan political advantage. And he's actually been pretty successful about that. Zero GOP votes, zero. Um, and m almost more telling than that, no offers of amendments. Um, no, they, they didn't put out a letter that said, you know, 25 GOP senators could have put out a letter that says, hey, we uh, we support the underlying impulse here. Mm -hmm. And with these changes, X, Y, Z, we could back it. Right. Nope, nothing like that. Just a flat out no. And I, I would assume this means they're going to bring up the, the John Lewis bill uh, by itself. Which, um, which is more narrowly tailored to the southern states affected by the Supreme Court case in Shelby County versus Holder. Uh, but it, it, it does not seem like they've got 10 Republican votes to break a filibuster uh, for, for, for any voting rights package at this point with, uh, with, with mm -hmm. the, the election so close. Uh, so, Scott, I know you uh, spend more time in the House than, uh, than in the Senate, but uh, what do you hear about the senators? There have been at least... By my count, four Democratic senators, Angus King and John Tester and Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, who expressed some doubts about toying with the filibuster or changing it in any way. But um, here is Angus King this week uh, saying that maybe he's having second thoughts. I've concluded that democracy itself is more important than any Senate rule. Uh, and I think that we ought to be able to find some way to satisfy those of who those who are committed to the idea of the filibuster bipartisanship requiring uh, minority engagement, uh, that we can find a path that will uh, satisfy them, but at the same time will allow us to move forward. So, are you as pessimistic as Jeff is, Scott? I'm as skeptical as Jeff is. I'll, I'll say that. Um, just because, you know, I think Joe Biden is responding to a lot of the political pressures he's feeling from the left. And what he said last night was, um, you know, he he thinks if he if he tries to do something now, he'll lose three votes, at least on his economic agenda and tank the whole thing. So he's sort of, uh, you know, teasing it a little bit for his liberal base, um, you know, probably trying to keep them at bay while he focuses on what he wants to focus right now, which is his, is getting that, you know, roughly $2 trillion in, uh, in social spending passed through the Congress. Um, but again, you know, it goes back to do Democrats have 50 votes ready to change the filibuster? And, you know, no matter how you add it up, you just don't get to 50. Um, but there is enormous pressure. I mean, we're, we see it from the base. We see it from progressives in the House. They're talking about the filibuster reforms, uh, you know, nonstop every week. 
Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that's what they're responding to. And, and uh, it, it's interesting to hear Angus King and, and certainly Joe Biden change their tune a little bit on the filibuster. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I'll sort of believe it when I see it. Yeah. Uh, it was interesting, finally, in the, on this point in the town hall last night uh, that the president did say in response to um, a question from a professor at Morgan State. By the way, Morgan State ruled the town hall last night. I think there were four questioners from Morgan State. Uh, he did admit that he hasn't been able to pay as much attention. He, the president, has not been able to pay as much attention to voting rights as he wants because he's been so consumed by uh, all the discussions and negotiations over the budget bill and the, the infrastructure bills. Um, a couple of just other, three other issues I'd like to touch on. Just briefly ask each of you about one of them. Um, maybe not the most important issues of the week, but I thought they were interesting. So Sungman Kim, suddenly the White House is consumed with trying to get trucks moving, ships moving, trains moving, supply chain. <laughs> this is a whole new field of action, right? Right, right. But important. Well- it, very important because obviously it's been it, it is crucial to the continual functioning and improvement of our economy. And I think one of the questioners who hit me last night, um, who brought up this issue, and I think that's actually why we going back to our earlier conversation, why um, you know why the White House and President Biden likes these town halls because they do hear from real voters about real issues that, you know, maybe that, you know, frankly, us reporters may not ask about. And one of the questioners mentioned that her family owns a small business and that she is really worried about the supply chain backups because that means products can't arrive in their small business. So, you know, maybe big corporations and big retailers like Walmart and Target have the resources to put product on their shelves, but maybe not for small businesses like hers. And, and, And so that's why I, um, and, and stories like that and the impact that can have because it's just such a vivid um, thing that just pe- people understand, you know, they know that it's a problem if things that they need to buy or want to buy for their families are not on the shelves and they, they can't buy them. It's also a big deal for business owners who can't sell these products and, and whose businesses will suffer, which is why you've seen the White House be really aggressive um, in contending with this issue in the last several days and weeks, particularly, you know, they have put together sort of a, a task force, if you will, examining the issue. Um, I did think it was interesting that President Biden said he was open to sending the National Guard yes, to deal with yes, these yeah, these supply right. chain issues. If you did, but if you notice, Bill, um, the White House actually had to clean that up pretty quickly after uh. um, after he said that because obviously um, state national guards are in the purview of each of the governors, which President right. Biden has no control over. Um, there may be some deployment he could do with the federal national guard, but they um, had to clarify that among a few other points in the town hall. And, and so, and so, but you know, bottom line, they want to show aggressive action because this is this is like gas prices. It's so real and so vivid to consumers, to voters, mm-hmm. and they want to fix that as soon as possible. Yeah, uh, you mentioned gas prices, Scott. Let me ask you. I mean, can you believe here we are talking about gas prices again? I mean, how often does does this come up? Like once a year, right? <laughs> and what can the president do about it? Well, as as the president and the White House and and members of his cabinet have been saying, you know, they don't control gas prices. They actually don't control the supply chain. The federal government does not control the supply chain. They can, uh, you know, exert pressure on on uh, you know 
the people that do run the supply chain, like they they announced the other day that they're going to have uh, you know the port of Los Angeles running twenty four seven to try to speed things up and get some of those bottlenecks cleared up. But you know, just to follow on what Sung Min was saying. They're, they're also responding to uh, political pressures. And, you know, just yesterday I wrote a story about how the Republican Study Committee, uh, the conservative group on Capitol Hill, put out, uh, put out a, a memo on how Republicans should message the supply chain crisis. And, and they said it's their job as Republicans to explain what, what the Grinches at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue did to ruin Christmas. And so when people's pres when, when children's presents don't arrive in time for yes, Christmas, Republicans are going to pounce on Joe Biden and the Grinches at the White House. What the they need to do is dress the National Guard up like elves. <laughs> and, and loading UPS trucks and such. All right. So the third off the wall issue, uh, Jeff, I'll leave it to you, is Donald Trump has launched his new, having been banned from Twitter and, and Google and Facebook, he has launched his own new, this is the second time he's launched a new social media network called Truth Social. Uh, it didn't get off to a very great start, but is this serious or is this uh, added to the list of Trump steaks, Trump wine, Trump airline, Trump university? Trump mattresses, things he's tried before. I, I know in a couple minutes you're going to ask me about my favorite story of the week, and I do have another one. Oh, but okay. Make, but make no mistake, this, this is, is one my of my favorite story of the week, and it's not close. Um, number one, as a lot of uh, as a lot of Sovietologists pointed out, uh, Pravda means truth in Russian. So <laughs> we, we're, we're starting right with that, that you're calling uh, your new media company Truth, Truth Social. Um, and then to, to add on to what you just said, Trump, remember, in May launched what was essentially a blog that right. lasted a month. Yeah. Um, and now he's been reduced to essentially having his spokeswoman, Liz Harrington, uh, tweeting out his statements in a backdoor way to get out of Twitter. Um, Parler, which was big for a few months, was effectively banned from the internet after January 6th because of its, uh, because of its role there. Amazon Web Services, Google, Facebook all knocked Parler off and essentially killed it. Uh, but now they say Truth Social has a, has a page. They have a waiting list. They have a, a page for users to sign up and become uh, uh, early adopters as long as they don't, quote, disparage, tarnish, or otherwise harm, in our opinion, us or the site. These are in the terms of use. You cannot criticize the site's oh. uh, founders oh. or, or operators. I don't know what the, the possible uh, penalty could be for that. Maybe they just kick you off. And then I think my favorite part was that uh, Shane Goldmacher from the New York Times got his hands on an internal uh, PowerPoint presentation uh, which showed that uh, they want to compete not only with Facebook and Twitter on the social media front, but ultimately with Netflix and Disney. <laughs> uh, yeah, really. You look, at, <laughs> yeah. look at Goldmacher's Twitter. You have to. You have to see this. Um, they want to compete with Netflix and Disney. Uh, it now, maybe okay. they do, uh, but it uh, takes an enormous. I'm just going to say the obvious. It takes an enormous amount of capital to get any sort of a, of a big tech venture like this up and running, and years upon years of losses 
which I, I, I don't think they have the, uh, the pocketbook for at, at, at the moment. Uh, I to think say the least. To say the least, I think it's bound to join uh, the long list of uh, Trump uh, great, huge successes that he launched that didn't last, didn't last very long. I mentioned some of them earlier. Okay, you mentioned favorite story of the week. It's time to move there. Thank you so much for your roundup of uh, what we saw happening in the news front this week. Uh, we always ask you, uh, during, despite everything coming our way, what one story caught your attention, stopped you in your tracks, maybe at least made you stop and think about it? Scott Wong, what was your favorite story of the week? Well, nobody could ignore on Capitol Hill this week. Uh, you know, in addition to trillions of dollars moving through Congress and debates about voting rights, Paris Hilton was on <laughs> Capitol Hill. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yep, that and- was mine, Scott. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so we, there, there's, enough, there's enough Paris to go around, Sungmin. Uh, she was there holding press conferences, meeting with senators, including Mitt Romney, uh, taking pictures in the Capitol, followed by a, a throng of reporters and press talking about the troubled teen industry. And and this was something I had no idea about, but apparently thousands of teenagers are shipped off to boarding schools and boot camps against their will every year uh, by their parents. And, um, you know, one of them was Paris Hilton. And she talked about how really she was abused at at these facilities. She said she was strangled and slapped and, and, uh, you know, had really unpleasant experiences uh, with some of the male staff at these facilities forced to take medication. This was something I don't think was on anyone's radar, really. And certainly she was standing the other day. I went out to, to go watch the press conference. She was standing there with Adam Schiff and, and Jeff Merkley uh, and Ro Khanna. And, you know, I don't think any of us would have covered that event if those guys were out there talking about the troubled teen <laughs> industry. But Paris Hilton was there. And, I mean, there were dozens and dozens of photographers and video cameras and reporters and House and Senate staffers and even lawmakers that wanted just to 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 go see Paris Hilton. So she's still she looks the same. She looks amazing. Uh, and obviously, uh, you know, she's doing good work with with this issue. Well, if it's enough to get both of you to say it's your favorite story of the week. <laughs> Sung Min Kim, you can you could weigh in here. But I mean, who is she? She's just famous for being famous, right? Right. I mean, she is the heiress to obviously the Hilton Hotel fortune. Um, famous for one being- of famous right one of the one of the heirs and um obviously had reality shows became kind of this pop culture icon but scott is right i mean this brought light this is a good example of where a celebrity can use their celebrity for good and bring that light to um an issue a problematic issue that you know we did not know about previously or did or did not have much uh, insight on or knowledge on. And I think, uh, you know, Paris did a lot of that um, in her in her few days on Capitol Hill and in Washington. And but I have to say, just as a point of personal privilege, as members of Congress may say, I just she posted this picture on Instagram with her reading a copy of The Washington Post. And my byline actually happened to be on the front page. So I like to oh. think that she read Uh, She got up to date on the reconciliation talk. (laughs) Um, uh, uh, But, you know, like she's posing with a dead tree edition of the Washington Post. You know, print is cool. And she was telling uh, aides on Capitol Hill in a video that circulated widely on Twitter that, quote, legislation is hot. And it is hot. So so I very much enjoyed uh, that this week. 
Uh, all right, Jeff, are you going to add in, weigh in here too? Or, nope. Or, I, or do I you have your backup favorites? I think enough is, uh, yeah, I think, I think Paris has gotten enough, uh, <laughs> enough screen time or enough talk time. Um, so we talked about the Maryland town hall and we talked about the Senator from West Virginia today. I've got the yep. nexus between the two, oh. which is that leaders of the three counties that comprise the Maryland panhandle say they want to become part of West Virginia. Oh no. Whoa. Yeah. Yes, it's huh. fascinating. On its face, this does make some sense because Maryland and West Virginia look like they're gerrymandered states. Um, and these counties indeed do have more, more in common with West Virginia. Uh, they're very red. They're in the mountains. They're Appalachian. Uh, and thanks to Maryland's horribly drawn districts, uh, Whoa. Where, where I'm sitting in Bethesda right now, it's not part of my district, but it's awfully close. It stretches down into Rockville and, and mm-hmm. North Bethesda. This same district, the 6th district, comes all the way down. Uh, so obviously they're not, they're not, they don't feel that they're well represented. What's much less clear is how this would actually happen. Um, West Virginia has told them they'd be happy to have them, uh, and they could uh, they could call for a referendum to accept those counties as part of West Virginia. Uh, Maryland agreeing to this is much much more up in the air in terms of how that would ever happen, and and if Maryland would would agree to it, and if it's even legally feasible. Interesting, because the very same thing is happening in the state of Oregon. Maybe you know. There are five counties in the west of Oregon, no, the east of Oregon, rather, who have actually voted to leave Oregon and join Idaho for the same reason, because they're red, uh, they're Trumpers, and they have little to do with what's with Portland and anything else that's uh, east of the Cascades there. So yeah. um, that movement is underway, uh, uh, Oregon to Idaho, and now from Maryland to West Virginia. Whoa. Well, my favorite story of the week... Um, uh, none of the above. I was really struck this week. First of all, you know, it's been um, a bad last few years for Christopher Columbus. Uh, uh, his uh, birthday is no longer a national holiday, of course. Very, there are fewer and fewer Columbus Day parades. He's basically looked down on now, uh, not as an American hero, not as a hero, but as someone who was uh, certainly uh, abusive of Native peoples. Uh, the president this year, for the first time, signed on Columbus Day, signed not a Columbus Day proclamation, but an Indigenous Peoples Day proclamation. That's how the day is celebrated. But I think the ultimate in- insult to Christopher Columbus came this week when Reuters reported, uh, actually in Nature magazine, that scientists have discovered a Viking settlement in the northern tip of Newfoundland that existed. This is in the New World, of course, in America, as long ago as 1021 AD, which is a thousand years ago to this year, and 471 years before Christopher Columbus sailed in 1492. So I think this destroys the Christopher Columbus myth and legend once and for all. There it is. We can we can bury that as well as a lot of other myths and legends that we grew up. Sorry for all our Italian-American friends who are listening, but it's all over for Christopher Columbus. And it's all over for today's podcast, today's roundtable. A big thank you to Sung Min Kim from the Washington Post, Scott Wong from The Hill, and Jeff Dufer from National Journal. And a big thank you to all of you uh, followers of the podcast for joining us today. We'll be back next week. Now, a little program change. We won't be here on Tuesday. Next week, we'll be here on Wednesday with a very important interview 
with Congressman Adam Schiff. We heard from him earlier. Is a great new book out called Wash- A Midnight in Washington about the first impeachment trial. Um, Congressman Adam Schiff joining us on the Bill Press Pod next Wednesday. Meantime, stay safe, stay strong, and we'll see you next week with Adam Schiff on the Bill Press Pod. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.